If you want to learn how to gain insights you can act on and solve business problems with data, all while building a data-driven culture at your organization, sign up for Pragmatic Institute's new course, Data Science for Business Leaders. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Data Chats, a podcast by Pragmatic Institute and the Data Incubator, where we tackle data topics and trends with experts, industry leaders, instructors, and alumni. I'm your host, Chris Richardson. Today, I'm sitting down with Zach Wenthe, Customer Data Platform Evangelist for Treasure Data, leading enterprise customer data platform. Zach is passionate about breaking down silos, operating more efficiently, and developing a true understanding of customers while building an emotional connection, something I want to really dig into today. Thank you for being here, Zach. Let's jump into it. Maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, so thanks for having me and, and uh, excited to be here and kind of talk about this. So my, you know, my background, I've always been, I've always been a marketer, or at least professionally. I, I went to college originally thinking I was going to go into theater. And then realized I probably wasn't going to make any money doing that. So then I kind of moved over to, to marketing and I realized it was marketing is kind of just the theater side of business. Yeah, um, and it was a perfect transition. So yeah, I started my career in marketing and then I ended up moving over to kind of out of, you know, traditional brand and, and digital marketing into consulting and working with large organizations, typically with some sort of technology implementation, whether that was a marketing automation platform, a CRM you know, web content management, personalization, you name it. So I, I ran digital strategy, persona development, use case development, a lot of that for, you know, for major organizations. And then the last handful of years, I've, I've kind of made the shift to the product world and, and been working with CDPs or customer data platforms as mm -hmm. kind of the holy grail of, of marketing, of bringing all of the customer data together in one place so marketers truly have an understanding. It's something we've always talked about or I've always talked about with customers and brands. And so it just seemed like the right place to land. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of things I want to ask about that in particular. But one of the things I liked in terms of the setup for you that we did is that you're looking to develop a true understanding of customers. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, because that word true just stuck out to me. What, what are some of those problems when you, we're trying to understand customers that a true understanding would maybe help fix in some way? Like, what, what does it mean to really get a true understanding? Yeah, so, so often, you know, brands operate in not even just department silos, but even channel silos, right? So you have the email version of Chris and you have the loyalty program version of Chris. And so what happens is, is when you as a consumer interact with a brand, you see them as one entity. Mm -hmm. Often when a brand interacts with a consumer, they see you as 37 different profiles across 10 different systems, some outdated, some they don't even know they have data around you in. And so the reality is they're not talking to you as Chris, right? They're talking to you as whatever fragmented version of that that, that system has. And so, you know, over the years, there's, there's been, you know, multiple challenges and, and from a technical perspective and from a, you know, an operations perspective to bring that together. But really the idea of that, that true understanding is you have to bring all the data together. You have to create a meaningful profile of the individual that's connecting those systems. And then more importantly, not just bring it into one place, right? A data warehouse can do that. You have to then meaningfully move that data back out to the email system. So now it can react and, and interact based on what's happening in the loyalty platform or what's happening if you walk into a physical store or 
you call into a call center. We've all experienced that world where we call in a call center and they have no idea who we are. They're yeah. asking us what phone number we, you know, we're calling from, even though we're on the phone number that we're calling from, you know. So it's that idea of of really like, you know, treating that that one-to-one relationship like it's actually a thing. Yeah. And I guess it sounds so simple when you say that. So why don't more companies and organizations do this? What are some of the main challenges? Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously I think, yeah, right, you're right. It's it sounds simple. And it really it is conceptually, right? Yeah. Bringing all the data together is, is conceptually easy. The reality is, you know, until even just recent years, we didn't have the scale of database and graph type systems to be able to bring that data together meaningfully outside of like an IT organization who was constantly managing that system, right? So being able to do it in a self-serve way, so a marketing organization or a customer support organization can be working with those large volumes of data without having to have a, you know, a data engineering background or writing a bunch of SQL or whatnot. So I think we had to wait for technology to catch up a little bit. And then we had to go beyond the idea of just, you know, for the nerds in the crowd, we had to go beyond the idea of like just a pure relational database, right? You know, kind of mm-hmm. V1 of this was CRM. CRM is like, oh, we're going to bring everything together. The problem is that's a bunch of static fields. Well, how do you take, you know, Chris's work profile and his consume, you know, his, his personal profile and then put them together meaningfully. Cause during the day you're in work mode, right. And you operate in work mode and at, at night you operate in, you know, consumer mode. And so one of the challenges that I always try to use or use as an example, when people say, well, isn't it the same? And I said, yes, except for when you behave differently. So I'll give you an example. I travel for work a lot, right. And I'm, I'm on planes, I'm in the airports, I'm in the hotels and I go to a coffee chain. The way I buy Monday through Friday at at said coffee chain is I buy for myself in the morning before I get on a plane, maybe something in the afternoon, but I'm buying for myself. And I do that all week long. But then on the weekend when I'm home and I'm with my kids, I go in and I might buy for myself, my wife, I buy buy an oatmeal, I buy some, some muffin, like I buy as a consumer. And those are two very different behaviors, right? And so Mm. if you only talk to the person as well, okay, he's mostly in work mode. So it's the only offers we're going to run, the promotions we're going to run, the incentives we're going to run. You leave out a whole segment of my buying behavior. Conversely, you do the inverse and you only pay attention to where I'm spending a lot at once. You forget that 90% of the time I'm buying solo, right? And so you have to combine those two realities to really... So it takes a mindset shift. It takes a technology piece and it takes a willingness to, to change and break some things along the way. Yeah. And well, and that's what I wanted to ask you about next is what are some of those changes along the last, I don't know, however far back you want to go and not just necessarily in the application or the, you know, the specifications that obviously computing power, data availability has gotten better, but what are some of those changes that have potentially helped us get to where we need to be or or getting there? Well, I think one of the, honestly, for good or bad, the pandemic drove a lot of those changes because... Mm -hmm. It forced brands to create, you know, I mean, we've been talking digital transformation. People have been talking digital transformation for a long time, but it really forced that hand in so many organizations, so many businesses, because there was no physical option anymore. It also really drove a very big consumer shift. We see, and we talk about this reality that the consumer's in charge now. The people who were scared of shopping online aren't scared of shopping online anymore. Like we have gro- people have, gro- I do have groceries delivered to my door. Like I don't go into the grocery store the same way. I don't buy the same. And the world has gotten so much smaller too, in the sense that we figured out that 
oh, our favorite brand who we bought from all along, you know, had supply chain issues and they didn't have something. And all of a sudden people found an alternative. You know, people mm-hmm. now order, you know, things online from across the world all the time. And so the way we just interact and buy and consume and do meetings on Zoom and, ha- you know, have interactions with people has just dramatically changed, which is now putting a lot of control in the power of the consumer. Consumer kind of decides how they want to interact and brands now have to keep up. It's not, here's my journey, consumer, you have to go come follow it. it mm-hmm. The consumer saying, hey, this is how I want to tr- transact and I'm going to go find a business that wants to do it my way. Yeah, and I think that probably ties, at least in some way, to the emotional connection that you also talk about. So yeah, maybe you could start by sort of defining how you see an emotional connection in this case and what are some of the strategies to really... I don't know if capitalize is the right word, but really harness that emotional connection. What are What is it and how can we use it better? Yeah, so first an emotional connection obviously is where you have some emotional reaction to a brand, good or bad, right? And obviously brands want it to be good. We all have we all have kind of an internal scorecard that we kind of keep on, on, on brands that we, we do business with. Those that are, have a higher kind of reaction, right? Happiness delight, whatever, whatever those, those, those feelings are you have towards the brand and how you do business with them. So it's not just, I think the big thing is not just how you feel about the brand, but how you feel about your interactions with the brand and shopping with them. Because, you know, there's some, we might love what they stand for. We are fully behind them as a, as a mission, but if they're painful and hard to do business with and they're frustrating and, and, and every time you interact with them, you're like, you walk away upset, you're still not going to do business with them, right? And so yep. that's the emotional connection, you know, is, is understanding that, that consumers, they don't just invest dollars, they invest energy, really, right? It's kind of woo-woo, but like they invest energy when they deal with brands and the brands that they like and they feel good about will exponentially spend more with, we do. Studies after studies after studies show that the brands we like and make us feel good we spend more money with. So very simply taking a step as a brand, stepping back and saying, Hey, these aren't just profiles. These aren't just IDs, but how are we interacting with people in a way that is meaningful and exciting for them? And again, it's one of those realities that again, sounds easier than it is, but it's really not hard because there's, there's some simple steps that I know we're going to talk about them today, but I mean, there's some simple things all brands can be doing. It starts with the idea of saying though, Hey, we do want to have that emotional connection, the emotional engagement with our customers beyond just the traditional brand advertising where it's, you know, you see during the Super Bowl where brands put up something that's either meant to make you cry or make you laugh or whatever. Like it goes deeper than that. It's got to go below the surface. Yeah. And I wonder if more and more people in marketing, especially, are thinking in that way. And if there's any risk, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, either emotionally charged content like in advertising or something where, you can understand that if a bunch of things are kind of dull and something really hits somebody, that's going to be great. But then if everybody is emotionally charged, then you just kind of get exhausted and you kind of want something not so emotionally charged. And that's, I know that's not exactly what you're saying, but I wonder if there are ways to go kind of too far to one side or the other when we're dealing with these emotional connections. Because for, for example, like if I'm changing my tires or whatever, I don't really feel like I need an emotional connection to those tires. You know, if I'm if I'm making a choice of what to buy, but maybe I'm I'm wrong in terms of the research. How do you gauge these things? Yeah, so I think there's a difference between emotional connection and intensity, 
right? So you can kind of yeah. think of it on, on a quadrant, right? There's the intensity of that emotional connection. So it, everything doesn't have to be overly dramatic or screaming in your face to kind of get, yeah. to get attention. But we, as consumers, we make decisions emotionally and then we justify them logically yeah. every time, right? So when you're buying new tires, you're probably buying them from a place of either safety because if you, you know, if your family's riding with them or you're buying them from a, a position of fun because you like to go out, you've got a, you know, if you've got a coupe and you're driving, you know, you don't want something sport. Like there's a feeling you're trying to solve for with that tire, hmm. you know? So does every brand have to tie into that? No, but should there be an element of that? If you're, if you're selling safety, there are messages that are meaningful and somebody's going to go, Oh yeah. Okay. That aligns with what I'm looking for. Therefore, hmm. if nothing else, it opens you up to then looking at them, having the conversation, going, going a bit deeper. No, I, you're right. There's clickbait for the sake of like, you know, hmm. just, you know, or, or trying to go viral. That's not what I'm even talking about. I think the idea is really more the idea, understanding that when we buy features and benefits are secondary, right? We connect yeah. to a brand. We have I mean, I, I guarantee you walk around your house and you think about like, okay, I bought this. Why did I buy this? Like you'll justify it, but there are people you go with and you're like, I have no idea why I still shop with them. I just like them. I just, you know, they're just my favorite. And so that's the side of it that I think, you know, most people miss. And more importantly, it's also the side that data unlocks a lot of conversations around because we can start to think about how do we get to understand our consumers better? Therefore, we can talk to them meaningfully and leverage data that we're already collecting, often in many cases, and tie it into our strategies from a product perspective, from a marketing perspective. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. And I wonder, though, how you envision or, or what strategies you've come across that really help put those two things together that often, at least you know, in popular consciousness, seem very disparate. You, ha you have emotional connection, and then you have data, cold numbers, binary algorithms, yep. whatever, right? Like that's the opposite of a sort of an emotional connection, at least when you think of it in that way. But of course, data can help us do a lot of things. Emotional understanding can help us do a lot of things. How do those two worlds come together in, in effective ways? Yeah, so I, let me give you an example from a, from a customer of ours, right? So we've got a customer who is a direct-to-consumer healthy, like prepackaged healthy meals, you know, delivery service, right? So they, they, food comes to your door, you make it. So as they were discussing, one of, the, one of the conversations that they had is, you know, as marketers, we should never argue about who our ideal customer profile is. Like we shouldn't ever have, like it should just be a given. It should be a no. And yet they were often because they had debates, right? It's like, are we going after athletes? Who, you know, who are we? And if you look at their advertising and you looked at their, their website and you look at their messaging, it is very focused around the athlete, right? The, the runner, the triathlete, the, you know, whatever, the CrossFit, all of those who people who are, you know, health conscious, health focused. And yet when they were going through an investment round, their investment, their investors challenged them on like, what is your, you know, this is what you say your persona is, but what is it really? Like, who are, let's, let's look at the data. And so they did, they said, okay, let's go look at people who are spending a lot of money with us, often repeating purchases. They took all of that transactional data they took all of their in-house like content these because they produced hundreds of blogs. They took all the content that they're that they're consuming, and then they went out and bought some third-party data, some demographic data, some psychographic data, some behavioral data from you know from from data vendors, and blended all that together and came up with the profile. 
And their most profitable, most engaged customer was not an athlete at all. It was a aging parent who either has kids who are in high school and are running around and aren't home very often or recently empty nesters. They want to be health conscious, but they don't want to cook big meals. You know, they were, they were running from places when they didn't want to do fast food, right? And so the idea of, you know, going after the biker, the swimmer, the cyclist, you know, all that, it, you know, maybe aspirationally some of these people had those, those ideas, but really the reality and what they look like was very, very, very different. And so creating those aspirational personas feels good a lot of times, but if your data doesn't actually back that up, your advertising is is missing the mark at times. Your content could be missing the mark. And so it really could have an impact on bottom line, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the issues is that traditionally, I mean, you've talked about silos already, but you have a data teams maybe collecting data, working with data, and then you have marketers or maybe, you know, a, a lot of that's simplifying things, but you have a lot of different people and the people dealing with those kinds of campaigns or the ways that you would actually connect with people and the people dealing with the actual data that would be taken in and analyzed could be very different, you know, perspectives, very different. Maybe they don't even talk to each other necessarily other than memos or something. How have you seen that? Hopefully, I guess, improving over time. And what advice do you have for, you know, marketers who might be a little scared of data and maybe data people who are, you know, not thinking like marketers? Sure. Well, I think at the end of the day, it starts with first understanding that you are a customer-driven business. Whether you realize it or not, whether you operate as a corporate culture like that or not, right? If customers aren't buying from you, whether that's B2B, B2C, doesn't matter. If people aren't buying, you're probably not going to be in business any longer, right? And so, so first stepping back and saying, what can we do to improve that interaction and kind of coming at it from that more you know, holistic approach of not product first, but customer first. So I think one, having that, and that comes from leadership, but I mean, it can come from bottom up too. But I mean, I think, you know, leadership really can carry that banner. But beyond that, yeah, I I think, you know, I've been in marketing a long time. We, marketers used to be scared of data, right? They used to be scared of, you know, data science because it felt controlling and it took the gut, you know, the, oh, I'm going to trust my gut and I'm going to go with this. I'm going to work, it takes the creativity out of it. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. It allows Hmm. you to focus creativity where it matters, right? Like, don't be guessing all the time and then have to create 10 different versions of content and then like hope one of them works like the throwing spaghetti at a wall kind of mentality. It's like, let's fine tune. So using the customer example from before, let's hone in on the fact that we know, you know, parents, you know, and busy parents and empty nesters are kind of our core. They're spending the most money with us. Great. Now go get creative around that, right? Now Hmm. you you've opened, unlocked some code, you know, in the, here's what our customers care about. Here's what they're doing. Now, what can we, what can we use that? How can we use that? And I think marketers who have seen that happen, get very excited about it. Now they're asking for data. Now they're going and finding the data engineer and saying, Hey, give me more, give me more, give me more. And I think the data engineers, once they see the outcome, the reverse of that, see the outcome themselves and see it work, they get excited because now Data can be very fun, but if you don't know what you're using it for, sometimes like the en- unending requests of like, oh, send me more, send me this, send me, gets yeah. like monotonous as well. So I, I think both sides have to see what the other one can do. And so the number one thing I always recommend organizations have is a center of excellence around customer data. Whether you are the most advanced or you're just beginning your journey, getting a group of people together and saying, you know, from cross-functional, you've got marketing, you've got 
data, IT, security, you know, legal, however, you know, however your company comes together and talk about what are we collecting? What are we using it for? Where are our gaps? What are our competitors doing? You know, what are they collecting? What are they talking about? You know, there's a, there's a lot of different ways just to have those conversations and then showcase the wins, right? Like, oh, IT, here's what I did. And then ideally, you know, the representatives on the center of excellence go back and share that and vice versa. But when you get people in a room and you just start to like remind them of things that are happening, like it's amazing how well it works. Yeah. Let's dig into that a little bit more because for me, I see some of that as a sort of a chicken and egg thing. Like if you're coming up with a campaign and hoping to attract the right people, you need to collect data on the people that do or don't come into your campaign. Right. But at the same time, like you kind of mentioned, if you know the people that you want to target, you can create better campaigns. Right. So I'm wondering what would you imagine? Maybe you want to dig into that scenario or maybe you have other examples. But if you're a marketer, what do you actually say? Hey, give me more of that data. Because I can imagine a marketer going to a data, you know, engineer or whatever, saying, What data do you have? And he or she comes back and says, you know, 52% of people are in a zip code with this, this, this and characteristic. That's not the same as being like these empty nesters are interested in health right. consciousness. That's a, that's a much harder data answer, right? Which is much more insightful, but not necessarily what the data will say, at least directly. So how do you sure. actually get that kind of insight? Because I think a lot of people may become frustrated when they say, okay, well, they have incomes between this and this median or whatever. That's not the same as getting those insights that you're talking about for an emotional connection. So how do you, how do you start to engineer that better within an organization? Yeah. So, so first thing is, is I think first way to engineer that is to understand what data you're collecting. Right. Because I think a lot of times, I know a lot of times marketers will only know what they're directly involved with. Right. So if you're the email marketing guy, you know what you're collecting on your email opt in forms and so forth, but you're not paying any attention to what the loyalty team is bringing in or yeah. what the app team is bringing in. So again, Center of Excellence is a great way to, to, to surface that, to create that data dictionary. So you're all talking through. And then it's, okay, well, what's our objective? Start at the end, right? What do we want to accomplish? And then back up, what do we need to get there? What do we have in-house? And then maybe what do we have to go out and source or get in another fashion? So, you know, just again, let's keep the thread of the customer who, who we were talking about. They knew they wanted to understand what their ideal customer profile was. So as they pulled their data, they couldn't answer all their questions. There was gaps. So there's different yeah. ways you can solve that. One is you can go buy data. Two is you can do customer research, right? You can start running your own surveys. And they do a lot of surveys now. They do a lot of things around, well, what's your health focus, right? So they do these zero-party surveys where they're asking customers, like, you know, why are you needing these healthy meals, right? Are you keto? Are you paleo? Are you just, just wanting to eat well? Is it just, you know, what's important to you? Fast, yeah. convenient, you know, easy, flavorful, so that they can start to put those things together. But they didn't gather that information without having an objective, right? So they, so, you know, I think knowing where you want to go, right? I want to drive more customers. We need to grow more in this area. We need to do this. Then you step back into it. What do we have? Go to your data engineer and say, hey, what can we get, you know, and work as a team? I think the other side of it is marketers have to know that they may not know the data as well as the data engineer. So don't pretend you do. Like, like yeah. drop the ego a little bit and go in and say, here's what I'm trying to achieve. Like, help me think through this. Like, what could we pull? Could we look at clickstream data? Could we look at the content that they're consuming? Could we look, you know, oh yeah, we have this. We'd have to connect it this way. We can do like, 
If you go in with a very specific ask, a lot of times the engineers will just give you that and there's no yeah. critical thinking involved. But they're willing, too often they're sitting there going, well, man, if they had just asked for this, I'd, uh, I could have given them, yeah. I didn't know that's what they were trying to do. The I didn't know answer, when I was, especially when I was in consultant and we got people in a room and you're just like, well, what you never asked. Well, you never told me. Well, you never <laughs> asked. Well, you never told me. And so like, I think when you start to talk about objectives and what you want to achieve, then people can do what they're good at. And the data engineers can be like, hey, I have an idea. This is crazy, but... And the marketers can be like, I love that idea. And it's crazy, but... And then you just start to feed off that energy. And it's, and it's way more fun. It's, way more, it's a way better way to go through your workday than fighting with, with data engineers or marketers all day long. Yeah. And that makes perfect sense, right? Communicating the context I've heard time and again is super important because it, it leads to so many more insights than you would get otherwise. And dropping an ego, I think, is always a, yeah. good, always a good strategy. How long would it take to build an emotional connection, especially the kind of the sort of deeper emotional connection that you're talking about? Yeah, what, what kind of time frames are we dealing with? Obviously, you know, at, there's a difference between the beginning and the establishment. But then I'm also curious, well, I'll let you answer that. And then I want to know a little bit more about like, you know, the timeline of possible change, you know, redirection or changing a message. But let's start with the original message. So when you're creating a new marketing campaign or something to that effect, what kind of time period are, are we interested in? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of factors in that idea, right? So one is first acknowledging that not every customer behaves and operates the same. Right. So you yeah. go into a campaign with the idea of, okay, who might be involved and what are what are some of those emotional triggers that we can capitalize on or that we can that we can leverage. Right. And so starts in the ideation phase, campaign, you know, typically you're looking at, you know, a month to three months, typically at a major enterprise, looking at kind of what are we planning out? Because they're looking at the next quarter or or two quarters down from a, you know, from a creative perspective. And so a lot of that is going in saying, what do we want to achieve? What do we want our objectives to be? And then, like I said, stopping and saying, okay, this is our target audience. But within that target audience, let's just use a stupid, simple scenario, right? There are people who are introverts and there are people who are extroverts, right? And so if you're doing a travel ad, thinking about your imagery, people who are sitting by the beach reading is going to appeal to, and the introverts are going to be like, I love that. I'm into that. I want to, I want to just sit and relax and, and read. Yeah. But showing a party and a bunch of people and networking and talking to people, the introverts can be like, not at all. No, that doesn't look like fun, right? So if you think about just the, just even just two different types of creative of the, you know, of the personality behind that target audience, demographically, they're the same, right? They're, they, they could be 25 to 35. They could be in this income range or whatever, but introvert or extrovert. Yeah. So thinking about where can we alter some of the creative? Where can we test different variations of the audience? And then that's what you're doing. You're running tests. You're just like you are with any other digital creative. But instead of just looking at, you know, did this image perform? It's let's think about the different emotional hooks that we're trying to trying to tie into, right? Whether that's, you know, again, introvert, extrovert, or it can be, you know, happiness, sadness, you know, so going towards happiness, gaining happiness, gaining, you know, a gain versus pain, right? Getting, avoiding, getting away from and, and thinking about the different types of ways you want to prepare that message. And Often you're working with an agency. And so it's a very long-winded answer to say, let, let's say from a creative perspective, you're doing a month of planning, you're doing a month of development, and then you should be testing it for a month or two 
around to see which ones resonate, which, you know, and you have three yeah. or four versions out there and you, you improve it. And then it's just a cyclical pattern, right? And, and as you learn, that planning gets shorter for those kind of things, if, you know, and even a lot of the creative just gets, you know, rebuilt. But it's so easy, especially in digital, so easy to print out 50 to 75 variations of content that are just changes of words, changes of your headline, changes of your call to action based on those different types of emotional triggers that even if you knew nothing about your audience, you could make some assumptions and you could start there. And then you're starting to collect the data to say, oh, this resonates, this doesn't, this does. And then use that to check in the data, who's buying, you know, even if they're clicking through, who's spending the most, right? And going all the way through the cycle and then just iterating one after another, after another. Yeah. And then once, you ha- once you've sort of set up a nice cadence, you feel like you really understand the audience that you're targeting, what do you recommend for sort of longer term? I don't know if you, if like, I doubt very much that a lot of companies want to do a complete turnaround. You know, we're going to be like a party company and now we're for introverts or something. But I do know that, you know, people can change. If, if nothing else, they get older, right? Their life course might change if, if you're in it for the long term. But how often should you be checking in to the extent that you might change more significantly? So, you know, if people like the color blue or the color red and you know that, like, great. So you can do quick A-B testing. But if you're thinking about going in a slightly different direction or you're realizing what used to work, maybe because of what's going on in the market doesn't quite work like it used to, what kind of checks should you be doing? How should you be using data once you are established? So I think then the reality there is you're looking at a couple different things. One is you should always be taking all of your quantitative and assumptions that you're basing off that quantitative data, right? So, oh, this was our highest click. This was our best seller. This was, and marrying that with qualitative data, customer research, going yeah. out now that somebody's bought, why did you buy? What mattered to you? What did you care about? You know, and asking, asking those questions. And there's different, there's different ways you can do that research. One is you can go with a survey and you can ask specific questions. The other way is you can do the whole, you can, you can go and you can talk about a topic. What's important to you? What do you care about? And you, you, you kind of back into then, you know, in other words, you let them, it's they're guiding the conversation and telling you what's important. Yeah. And you're trying to find commonalities between those conversations with customers. And I think it's a, people can do both. And there's, there's benefits to both. Qualitative surveys sometimes tend to be leading uh, a lot of brands like want to, you know, they want to verify their answer or they want to validate their answer and they they kind of lead customers down a path of, you know, like NPS scores. Like everybody feels bad when they, unless they're angry at the brand, everybody feels bad giving them a low score. And so it's sometimes mm-hmm. they can be very self-serving. There's benefits to them, but changing up and asking the same question in different ways is going to unlock insights. So quantitative tied to qualitative. The other way is start to think about machine learning and start to look at, affinity groupings or behavioral clusterings or starting to look at, you know, uh, how are people interacting on their website? How are they interacting with your brand? Looking at all these different touch points and then letting, you know, clustering, for example, you know, K-means clustering and, and there's tons of algorithms, but clustering a consumer based on some of different, you know, key points, right? Recency, frequency, monetary, interaction, NPS scores, and then starting to go back and say, well, what's different between group A and group B and starting to look at, you know, the different data points. And then interestingly, you go back to the qualitative and you start to say, okay, this is my assumption. Can I validate that assumption? Right. And and you start to find groupings that you never knew existed within Mm. your major group. Right. So I don't have to change from being an extroverted company to an introverted company. 
But within my extroverted company, I found that there's five different groupings within my main grouping. And the reality is, is some are very seasonal driven. They're never going to interact more than once a year. Like that's just how they, that's how they, you know, because they don't, they don't have a need. Others are like any opportunity you roll out a new product, they're on, you know, so you start to kind of figure out what is the drivers and then you can wrap your campaigns around those variations. Because I think the other reality we're seeing is the shift from one size fits all, all campaigns point to one outcome to this idea really of micro campaigns and micro objectives and micro focus, because you can really targeting wise, you can focus audience wise, channel wise, you can get so you can niche it down pretty far. And so you can really, without changing your company, you can change your message to, you know, Chris, you could get a different message than I could get. And yet we could have the same, you know, same outcome. We're both buying from the company. We're just buying for different reasons. And we're buying for a reason that's meaningful to us. Yeah, without going too sci-fi, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what direction that might go in because it occurred to me as I was, you know, a few weeks ago starting to play with uh, Chat GPT. Have you you've seen that? Yes. Yeah. I guess everyone's started to play with that now. And the the idea was, you know, I literally said, you know, come up with, you know, 10 catchphrases for this podcast or something, right? And I was thinking that it doesn't seem very far-fetched now that that kind of technology is available to say, you know, put it into some kind of algorithm, artificial intelligence, whatever you want to call it, and target market each person individually or something. Is that at all realistic? And also, should marketers and and data scientists be worried about their jobs? Not to get, again, not to get too far-fetched, but I wonder what you think about the newer technologies and the potential. Yeah. Is it possible? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely possible. And I think it's, I think we're just, I mean, I think Chat GPT just announced that Microsoft is investing $10 billion in a 49% stake of their company or whatever. I mean, so obviously something's working right in their world. But no, I mean, I, I absolutely think it's, an, it's a possibility and a likelihood very soon in ways. And, and I'll, so I'll, I'll caveat that with the sense that is it going to replace a marketer's job or a data science? No, it's not. But can it be a great way to produce a lot of content variations off of some, you know, off of a theme where the marketer's net job is now being good at writing a seed for an AI to produce output and mm-hmm. then and then editing that? Absolutely. Like I could see that happen. I mean, I'm I guarantee that's already happening. People are, you know, just like you did. You write a good seed, you get a bunch of answers back, you go tweak two or three or four of them and, and the reality is, is now stuff we wanted to do as markers, but we just never had enough time to do. Like, I, oh, I want to test ver- 10 variations. Now you can, right? And mm-hmm. so I think it's going to actually make markers more valuable just in different ways. Data science, same, because we're going to be collect. Now we're going to have all these variations. Now we, we really want to test them and we want to start to look for patterns, people to be able to write, you know, more meaningful algorithms. I think the idea of a brand only being able to drive personalization based off, you know, a rule or an explicit rule. Like if you click on this and you click on this, then we're going to show you this. Like that is not going to be, there's a, there's a bar that's going to get raised at some point where now we want AI driven journeys and AI driven personalization to happen on a, on a website as a consumer. And so it's going to require other brands to start to invest in that and focus on that and build that. So again, it's just going to shift. It's just going to move you know, the goalposts a little bit, but, but I don't, I don't think it gets rid of it. I think it just opens up new opportunities. Yeah. It may also, yeah, like you said, it could change the goalposts in a sense, because what we're dealing with now is 
as a customer, we're expecting some kind of like very unique, knowing that it's from probably an AI driven algorithm, but that kind of content coming to us. And so I wonder how you consider emotional connection in that respect. So if I'm a consumer, I click on something, maybe I expect it, you know, at least into the future to be very unique to me and my needs and my history of whatever I've been, however I've been interacting. But I wonder if like, that sounds to me like I also wouldn't have as much of an emotional connection because I would, I'm just assuming, you know, this is all mathematical. What, like, what should you be thinking about as a marketer or as a, you know, as an organization when it comes to that kind of thing? Yeah, I think the reality is, is then we're giving consumers way more credit. The reality is, is like, we still like emotional connections, like whether it's coming from a robot or not, like, I think, you know, if it still makes us feel good, we're still, I mean, we're simple creatures, we're still going to feel good, right? And so how we got there, I think is going to be less because even, even now we know, you know, we're dealing with a corporate entity that probably doesn't care about us yet. We still have our favorite brands that like we love and like, have never talked to us personally, like, you know, but yet we still would like fight our friends over them kind of thing. And so we kind of do it now. We're just going to do it differently. So I think in that regard, I don't think consumers are going to be like, oh, you know, because they responded to me, AI, I'm not, you know, maybe somebody will. P people are also resistant to change. So there's, there's that element of, you hmm. know, of it. We also set the bar based on all of our interactions, right? So once a brand does it and it works, yeah. The next interaction you have with another brand it doesn't have to be in the same industry. It doesn't have to be in the same vertical. You're going to remember, but they did it. And why can't you? Right. And so we, we, I mean, think about your interactions now, listeners think about your, I mean, like you set your criteria and your, your expectation of how an interaction is going to go based on all of the previous interactions before them, regardless of, was that a B2B interaction? Was that B2C interaction? Was that, you know, a yeah. local, you know, local restaurant can't compare to, you know, a, a nationally optimized chain and none of them can compare to say how Amazon operates. Like they're all just very different classes. And yet we all compare them to each other hmm. consciously or subconsciously. And so that's, what's going to change the AI game is when brands start to do it and do it well. And consumers are like, this is cool, or this is easier, or this made, you know, made my life you know, I don't have to talk to anybody. I can just chat and get everything done and it's going to respond. And I'm not frustrated when I walk away because like, I, I feel like I'm, you know, chatting to a wall. Yeah. That's going to, that's going to drive innovation. Yeah. So for organizations that are trying to leverage this and maybe different industries should think about it somewhat differently, but what are some approaches that you think? So people, people listening to, to us right now may be saying to themselves, our organization isn't quite there yet. Like we're not using AI to do individual chats or anything, but we want to be making a better emotional connection with our customers. And we want to be harnessing data to the fuller, to a fuller extent than we are now. What are some of those like big picture questions or, or approaches that they might want to take? Yeah. So I would start with the idea that, you know, a customer journey is only as good as the customers willing to go on that journey. Right. So if you lock yourself in the room and you draw out your customer journey and you say, okay, this is, this is the entry points. And these are the, you know, these are the interaction points. And every marketer has gone through a customer journey exercise in their, in, in their life, you know, and a lot of data people now are doing it, right. Cause they're what systems are interacting with and, and they're only as good as the consumers willing to go to through them. Right. And so we have to take, again, have to take a customer centric view on it. What, is the customer wanting to do? Not what do you want them to do? What do they actually want to do? 
And then from there, think about where can we personalize? Where can we make that experience easier, happier, friendlier, right? Where can we remove friction, pain, right? Or where can we add, you know, gain, add, you know, give them something and a value in exchange, right? So if I'm giving you my email, it's not for the benefit of the brand. It needs to be also for the benefit of the consumer. So what's involved there? And just do that all the way down the, all the way down the line and kind of, you know, Honestly, if you don't, I mean, I guarantee you every organization has somebody. Find your devil's advocates. Find the people who get your journey in the pace and then let them tear it apart and be like, yes, but I would never do it that way. Mm-hmm. I hate interacting. I hate having to call in to validate. I don't know. I'm just making something up. I hate having to call in to validate my PIN code. But our system requires, I don't care. I hate doing that. Like, it's stupid. Mm-hmm. And then when you have those people, then you, then you have to say, okay, but... What are the, you have to be open to the the way we've always done it kind of conversation doesn't work, right? So if you truly want to be serious about it, tear your own process apart. Don't justify it, break it, and then try to find ways to improve it so that it's you in control of that, not the consumer or not your competitors who are going to come up with a better process. Yeah, I like that. And I wonder, you know, to sort of wrap up this line of, of thinking, what are maybe one or two things that people could do who are listening to this if they wanted to start that process, if they wanted to really get going? But, you know, these these seem like huge issues to tackle, right? What are one or two things that they could do today or tomorrow to start to see or build an impact? Yeah, so if you're on the data side and you don't have a data dictionary that talks about all of the customer data you are collecting within your organization, where it's coming from, what system it is, what you're collecting, and ideally what it's used for, start there. Absolutely start to catalog all of your data. And you can start small, right? Okay, email, we, you know, we, here's the schema, here's some things. We don't really know what we use it all for. That's fine, but you've got it. And you start to do that all for the systems because I guarantee it opens up conversations now amongst the teams, whether you do a center of excellence or not, being able to just talk about what are we collecting, why are we collecting it? It has ramifications from a privacy perspective because you'd be like, hey, you shouldn't be collecting that or we don't need it or it's it's causing friction in our form and nobody uses it anymore. It's an old, outdated, you know, relic yeah. value, but having those conversations. The other one, if you're more from a kind of business line of business or marketing side is if you haven't talked to a customer, like on the phone, on Zoom, at a trade show in three months, six months, a year, pick up the phone, find a customer, get in front of them. And don't just ask them things that are important to you. Ask them, ask them about themselves. Ask them, what are they, what are they struggling with? What do they do? Why do they like, you know, why did they buy from you? Would they buy from you again? Why wouldn't they, you know, and, and, and tell them, you know, be honest, you know, and give them the, the freedom to tell you the good, the bad and the ugly, because you will learn so much just even in five conversations that, that may not be statistically significant to say, hey, I'm going to go change my entire strategy based on these five. But if it if there's smoke, there's fire often. Mm-hmm. And so go if you got five people who are what you consider good customers all saying about the same thing, okay, now I have a hypothesis that I need to go work out and I need to go dive into some data. I need to talk to some more. I need to test this out. You know, it, it, are these squeaky wheels or is this a real thing? You know, and and often you will gather way more insights into what's going on with your customers just in a 15 minute conversation than you ever would staring at a dashboard all day. But the dashboard then just takes that to scale, right? It builds up and you can say, okay, I understand from this conversation. Oh, regionally, maybe we have a problem. And then you can start to dig, you know, you just start to kind of pick it apart and it, and 
Do you solve it in a day? Not at all. But yeah, talk to your customers if you haven't and build a data dictionary. Those two things will already leap you ahead of your most of your competitors. Yeah, that's excellent advice. And I think anyone listening, like you said, can start on that right away and start to see some big differences. If they, if they haven't done it and then they have done it, you know, from those two points, it's a, it, it's a definite game changer. So Zach, I really appreciate being able to pick your brain today. If people want to see more of your work or hear more or maybe connect with you, what do you recommend? How should they get in contact or, or follow you? Yeah, absolutely. So if you are, if you're interested in first party data strategy or, or that's a, you know, a, a problem you're trying to solve in the organization, obviously treasuredata.com, you can come to our website and uh, talk a little bit more about customer data platforms. Um, you can request a demo. Personally, you can find me on LinkedIn, Zach Winthe, W-E-N-T-H-E. I'm there quite often posting and chatting. I'm happy to connect with anybody, carry on the conversation, send me a message and, you know, let me know you listened. But yeah, either, you know, professionally, you can like, again, treasuredata.com or Zach Winthe, W-E-N-T-H-E. Perfect. I appreciate it. That was a lot of, of great advice packed into a short amount of time. And, uh, and so... Yeah, well worth getting together with you. And I'm really glad we could we could do that. So what just once again, thank you so much for talking to me today, Zach. Thanks for having me. 